It was a Sunday. In fact, we know which Sunday it probably was, March 29th uh, on our calendars of the year A.D. 33. It was the lead up to the Passover festival in the city of Jerusalem. Uh, This festival that took place every year in which Jewish people from all over the world descended on Jerusalem and on the temple to commemorate this great moment in their history in which God worked signs and wonders to take them out of slavery under the hand of a foreign power in Egypt. During the Passover each year, a city of 40,000 in Jerusalem could swell to over 200,000 as all these sojourners made their way from near and far. At the time, Jerusalem and all of Israel was under Roman rule. Um, From the Roman perspective, you could imagine that during this Passover festival each year, the homeland security threat level was on highest alert, right? Think about it, there's uh, 200,000 Jewish people gathering all in one place, resentful of being under the control of a foreign power. Um, They are cramming into a city that doesn't really hold them. They're getting really excited about their religion, and they're commemorating a time in their history when they threw off another foreign power that they used to be under. If there was ever a time for a terrorist attack or a revolt, Passover week would be it. But it wasn't just the Romans who were on heightened alert during Passover week each year. It was also the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem. They had worked hard to cultivate a somewhat amicable relationship with the Roman authorities. And as a result, they had gotten privileges that other subjugated peoples didn't have in the Roman Empire. And so, from the perspective of the Jewish officials, they didn't want anything to happen during Passover week that would disturb this arrangement or disrupt the status quo. So in AD 33, there's, on this particular Passover, a significant crowd of sojourners coming from the north, from a region called Galilee. And these particular sojourners from Galilee, there's, there's a buzz among this group this year. Because back in Galilee, where they come from, some unusual things had been happening in their midst. There was a teacher from among them, a rabbi named Jesus from a little village there called Nazareth in Galilee. And he, according to their accounts, had been displaying these astounding displays of power. He had been teaching in a way that claimed authority that none of their religious teachers had ever claimed. He had taken a young boy's lunch and turned it into a meal for thousands. And according to multiple eyewitnesses who were coming to Jerusalem for this feast, he had recently even raised the dead. So the crowd coming from Galilee in particular was excited, more excited than ever for this particular Passover. Even the skeptics among them would have had to admit that there's something unusual going on in the events surrounding this Passover. And maybe the dreamers among them are searching the scriptures, looking back to what we would call the Old Testament and seeing there that it's prophesied that one day there will be a king on Israel's throne once again, a king from the line of David, their greatest king. And this king would reign with righteousness and justice as the foundation of his throne. Some of them were yearning for this. They called this king, this coming king, this Davidic king, the Messiah. The anointed one. And some among this crowd from Galilee were wondering, 
Could this Jesus, could, could he be the one? The Gospels tell us the story of what happened next. If you have a Bible, you may want to open to Matthew 21. If not, you can just listen as I read verses 1 through 11 from Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them. And he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Each year, we call this Sunday on the Christian calendar Palm Sunday. And we call it that because of that story you just heard, that the crowds that came with Jesus from Galilee laid down palm branches and laid down their cloaks on the road in front of him as he entered the city of Jerusalem. It was something like a coronation ceremony for a king. They're even using kingly language to describe him as they call him the son of David. And you heard in that story that Jesus himself didn't shy away from being called a king. In fact, he goes and gets a donkey to ride into the city on, knowing full well that the scriptures had prophesied that this is exactly how Messiah would show up when he came. If Jesus thought these people were making too much of him by claiming him as their king, this wouldn't be the way of going about it. No, each of the Gospels reads as though this Jesus knows that he is the king. And he embraces the lofty claims that these people are making about him. And many of you know that we Christians believe that Jesus, this same Jesus, is our king even to this day. And what that means is that at some point for each of us who have come to know Jesus as king of our hearts, there was a time when he wasn't the king of our hearts. And there was a time when he became that for the first time. For some of us, it was a moment that we remember very distinctly in which Jesus took his spot on the throne of our hearts. For others of us, we don't maybe remember a specific moment as much as a season of life in which our lives were transformed and we stepped off the throne of our hearts and gave up kingship to Jesus. But in any event, The story of a Christian is a story of someone who went from being king of their own lives to having Jesus reigning on the throne of our hearts. This morning we have a special treat. We get to hear stories from four members of our congregation who have made Jesus king of their life or 
more precisely, have acknowledged Jesus to be the rightful king of their lives. We're going to get to hear how that happened for them. And for each of us, if we'll allow God to speak to us through their stories, we may just see ourselves in their stories in one stage or another. The first person who's going to come up is Maggie Fensler. She's going to share her story with us. Let me pray before we hear these stories. Lord, we just ask simply this morning that you would speak through the stories that are told and that you would help us to see ourselves in one or more of these stories and that those who haven't acknowledged you as king would come to see how beautiful your kingly reign is. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm Maggie Fensler, and it's a privilege to be here with you all this morning, so thank you. I thank God that I can say that I don't remember a time in my life where I didn't have Jesus Christ. My earliest memories of childhood were preschool at Christian Heritage Academy, my first Sunday in what had been called the Blueberry Room right downstairs, and the glow of the warm lights in my new little brother's room, where I first accepted Jesus into my heart with my mom. As I grew up, my parents constantly demonstrated for me what a real relationship with Jesus looked like. I went to private Christian school for almost 11 years, and North Sub has been like a second home to me for almost my whole life. For these things, I'm incredibly grateful, but because we live in a fallen world, I still had doubts. I remember a time in my later childhood, even though I believed in Jesus, where I was scared that I wouldn't make it to heaven when I died, or that God would somehow forget to take me there. When I was 10, my mom went to North Carolina to be with my grandma during her back surgery. One night, an unusually late phone call and a shocked reaction from my dad on the phone led me to suspect that something had happened to my grandma. I remember the way my dad broke the news to me. He sat my brother and I down and asked us, kids, who gives life? Who takes it away? The answer to both questions, of course, is God. It was the first time I had experienced the concept of death, but I saw how assuredly my family believed that my grandma had gone to be with Jesus, and I never again doubted that one day I'd go there too. But also between then and now, the Lord has allowed for the passing of six more close family members, and as each occurred, so did another startling reminder of how much my life is not my own, but the Lord's to use however he chooses to glorify himself in his power, majesty, forgiveness, and unconditional love. One night when I was 12 years old, I heard the gospel for the first time in a way that struck me emotionally and permanently. And it stamped into my mind the permanent image of myself on an auction block, dirty and ragged on a stage, in front of a big, heartless crowd and worth nothing. But God was in the audience, And he claimed me with such a loud and passionate yell as though he were in fierce competition for me. And he was willing to pay the highest price necessary even to give up the life of his own son just to get me off that auction block and take me home with him. And that night I realized, yes, God is the giver and taker of life, but he's also the owner. And that night my faith truly became my own. My first year in public high school was an important year in my faith. 
It was the first time I fully stepped out of the Christian bubble of my life, pursued my walk with Christ on my own without being fed the word of God in school. Public high school was important for me to realize how hurt and lonely the world is and how life-giving the love of Jesus is to it. That summer, I traveled with a youth group to Kansas City, Missouri, for a conference called Challenge, attended by 5,000 students and leaders from churches around the world. I was 14, and at that conference, I watched unbelievers come to Christ. I saw some of my best friends' faiths change in tangible ways. The leaders on that trip became some of the most spiritually influential people in my life, and I saw how only the power of the Holy Spirit is capable of changing lives and hearts. As the Lord taught and continues to teach me, he has opened up my eyes to the gift of music and the passion he has given me for it. He has been teaching me how powerfully it can be used to express pain and praise to God and how it can bring us together in the worship of our Creator and King. And God has brought many teachers and role models into my life to help me develop my passion for music and my confidence to carry that out, especially the Kellogg's. I remember the particular piano lesson with Lydia many years ago when she asked shy and quiet little me if I would want to start playing piano in the kids' KIDZ worship band on Sunday morning. At that time, nothing was more terrifying, but Robbie and Lydia are quite the relentless convincers of the people they believe in. And looking back, I thank God for that. I didn't know how life-changing giving in to them would be. Though it has ultimately been God's will, they are the primary reason that I'm studying music and God's word at Moody Bible Institute today. I observed for many years the way they so diligently serve Christ and the church through their worship, leadership, and continual investment in young musicians like me. And I decided that I wanted to be in the same place that God had so very obviously used in their music careers and faith journeys. And in my first year there, God has been teaching me so much about his word, his goodness, and my identity as a daughter and servant of Christ the King. But what keeps me glad that Christ sits on the throne of my life and not me? Wouldn't I get tired of being a servant all the time? Not so much when I'm more tired of myself. Part of the Lord's faithfulness in my life is his allowing me to struggle with sin. This battle with my own sin nature has left me tired, humbled, disgusted, and glad that this life isn't mine, but that of a perfect and merciful king who has the sole power to wash it clean. Without Christ, I truly am just a dirty, worthless item on an auction block. But with Christ, I have life, and it's all to him I owe. I am his servant, and he is my king. Thank you. Good morning, Northsop. My name is Nasser Afzali. I was born in the Muslim's family with five brothers and four sisters. Even though our parents were very committed Muslims and they were just going through all those rituals that every other Muslims were just going, but basically they were not really pushing us and forcing us. But we were just looking at them and took an example and followed them. And through the first uh, summer of my college, I realized, because I was just a little bit more matured, I realized that 
the God of Islam that needs to be prayed in Arabic, and at the same time, we don't really understand anything in Arabic, and we have to remember or memorize certain phrases and then repeat it without even knowing what it is and what it is all about. And then I said, no, this is not the God that I'm going to be, you know, worshiping and praying to. And at the same night, I dreamt of Jesus Christ. I was just looking at me in a white garment and with the open arms. But then from a Muslim's point of view, we believe that Jesus Christ is another prophet from the same God. So that's why I really didn't see it as a big deal. I didn't even discuss it with my brother, that we were just going to the school and study. And then I said, no, this is not the God, and this is not the prophet. And I literally turned away and become an atheist and gone through my you know, uh, college and being an atheist. And finished my college, and I decided to continue coming to U.S. for my, you know, higher educations. And I came. I came here and went through my, you know, college educations, even though some of our friends were Muslims, because we were all Iranians and getting together. And I was just even teasing some of them that, you know, why you're praying to the God that in, in a language that you don't understand? And, you know, we just kept pushing him, pushing him until the time that, one of them, one of them just, you know, stayed, stayed away, and he didn't really uh, pray to God. But at the same time, he was not really released himself from the God of Islam. But anyway, the way that I was just looking at it, practically, I was even debating other people that there is no God. I graduated my, uh, I, I finished my graduate school, I studied some other areas of spiritualities, but I really didn't go into details in that part. I established my own firm, and then I said, you know what, maybe there is God, or maybe there is no God. I was just going back and forth, and I studied through some other ways, but I really didn't get far. Uh, when I was studying and I was having some ideas about having my own business. I started my own business. And then through this practice that I had, one of our friends said that there is an Iranian lady that has started their own businesses. Why don't you go ahead and find out, you know, what is it that they need? And literally, I forgot about it. And in a while, while I was just sitting in my office, I heard a very clear voice that it says, while you're waiting, get up and go and see what is it that you could help them. And then practically without even thinking, I start, you know, walking and took, uh, went, went, to the, uh, went to the stores and then talked talk to her, Lucy. And I realized that was the last day that they were just having their store. And then after that, they were just closing the store. So make the long story short. After a certain period of time, we got married. Even though we got married, I was, I was an unbeliever. And then somehow, from my point of view, I was an unbeliever. But from the other point of view, yes, I was a Muslim. And then her family denounced her because you married a Muslim person or man. And to me, it was an insulting, but I said, I'm not even a believer, let alone a Muslim. So why they're just you know, putting me a label which is not really suited to me. But anyway, we got married, and she went through a lot of 
headaches and troubles from, from her uh, family side, but she endured and she walked with me. <laughs> so all the way through 2006, 2006, I ended up being in a very small uh, Middle Eastern uh, store and not knowing why am I there and what am I supposed even to pick. But then by the time I wanted it to leave the store, a man walked in and says, well, are you Iranian? And I said, yes. And he says, would you like to watch a video of Jesus Christ? And without any control, I said, sure. Took it. And he says, oh, by the way, we are getting together next week, which is a Sunday. Would you be interested to come in and join us? And I said, sure. Where is it? And he gave me the address, and then Sunday when I went there, I realized that it's the orchard in Arlington Heights. But then surprisingly was this, that had this been happened a week before, I would have said, wait, wait, wait a minute. Let's go and sit down and have a cup of coffee, and let's debate and discuss and see if there is any God. But now, without even anything on my part, any control, I said, sure, we will take it. And then the same night, we watched the video with Lucy, and I was upside down. I even at that time, I really didn't know, and I really didn't put this together, connected the dot. But anyway, I went there, and on the Sunday when I went there, there was an Iranian pastor, his wife, and a couple of other Iranians, and I. We started the Iranian church in the orchard just about 2006, and then 2008, August 17, 2008, I was baptized in, in the orchard. And that's when I went through the changes. And then I realized the love, the love of Christ. I started the Bible study and I realized how God really loves us and our sinful heart is the one that is going to be walking away from him. And literally he's chasing us. The way that now, even then, I realized that God picked me up from the beginning. I mean, there's a lot of his story when I go back and look at it and see that his role and his hands in my life. And then I see how these are connected together. But anyway, a, when, when I went through the baptisms, then I really felt and saw the changes. Not only me that I realized and I compared my life, which is very calm and settled with the maybe a couple years before, and miserable, wretched individuals and nervous. And then even Lucy was really looking at it and see, wow, what happened? But anyway, uh, during uh, 2008 through 2010 and 11, and then after that, we started searching for the new church. And then the first day that we came to North Saw, Pastor Greg was just, uh, preaching, and then we were just sitting somewhere way back there. And after the sermon was finished, Lucy says, well, I love this church. And I said, wow, I was so happy and glad that finally we found our church that we could really settle down and grow in our you know, Christianity. Because even at that time, even right now, I will just see myself as a, as a 10-year-old baby that I'm just growing and, you know, learning about the love of Christ and how he loved us and he 
showed that he cared for us, and then we're the one, as I said, that we're just walking away from, from him. Now I'm just continuing through my Christian life and just growing and learning and through a Bible study that we have in Chicago through Sam Shamund, and I really, he really helps us to go deep into the Bible from the Old Testament to the New Testament and show us verse by verse that how love God really loved us way from the beginning. Even last Friday, he was just talking about that he is really the one who is going to create us from our mother's womb and he's going to take care of us from there all the way till the time that he calls us home. But anyway, make the whole story, you know, short because it's been a very long time. The way that I'm looking at it is this, that Jesus Christ is my God and my creator and my king. And I'm learning. I'm learning because the fact of, as a Christian, I know we are sinners and then every day we are sinning, whether we know it or not. We are not under the power of sin, that at this time, if we are sinning, is the sin that we are either based on ignorance or anything else, we commit it. But the question is, in my personal life, is this that I'm keeping a prayer life and a repentance life, and then hopefully that, you know, by the time that Jesus Christ, my Lord and my King, will call me home. Thank you very much. Good morning. Feels like some announcements are coming. <laughs> I usually do announcements if you're new. It's the only reason I usually am up here. Okay, my name is Janelle Anderson. I've been here at North Sub for six years, and I have the pleasure and blessing of sharing my testimony with you all this morning. Um, so I grew up in a family that did not know Jesus. Um, we went to church every Sunday, my entire family and I went to church every Sunday. Um, my cousins and aunts and uncles and grandparents and brother and sister. For generations, we went to church every Sunday, um, but none of us knew Jesus Christ. I want that to kind of sink in. And I know for a fact none of us knew Jesus Christ because one by one, as some of them started getting saved and actually heard the gospel and got to know Jesus Christ, they were transformed into completely different people. My grandma, my mom, my dad. So after all those years of church going, there was just really no, there was no power because there was no gospel. So we all lived in a kind of a rule-following Christian culture that just had no power and it had no grace. And there was no awe or wonder of God because we had no idea who he was. We just knew what we were supposed to go do. Um, but every time we went there every Sunday, there just wasn't the gospel. It was just, now make sure you go home today and do what you're supposed to do. But there was no power, right? So it was a very defeating cycle. It was, it was hard, I think, for all of us. But God and his divine power and will 
sent my mother to Marcy Paskey. And Marcy Paskey was a Christian. None of us knew it. We didn't know any Christians that we knew of. Um, But my mom had her babysit me and my little sister regularly when she went to work. And Lori, her daughter, became my best friend and my little neighborhood buddy. And the church that Lori attended encouraged her to invite all the neighborhood kids to the Awana Bible program every Wednesday. So every Wednesday, Lori was begging me to come with her to Awana. Um, Now, the church I come from, that's a big no-no. You don't go. And my dad said no for weeks and weeks. And he would make fun of it and call it Bawana. You're not going to Bawana, whatever this thing is. He was very apprehensive about it. Um, I just want to have a quick side note. A few years later, five, six years later, my dad ran the entire Awana program in his full uniform every week. Praise God. So thank you, Awana, and those of you who just, not just Awana, but the kids' programs, that you encourage the kids to go out, because I was that rangy neighborhood kid that was getting invited, right? So I went to Awana every week. I heard the gospel every week, did not accept Christ at that point. Um, Went to the VBS every summer. Um, But what happened was, fast forward a few years, my mom got saved, um, started following Christ. He became the king of her life. Kind of in a miraculous way, she was just starving for something. She didn't know what she was starving for. I remember her being very restless and asking everybody, what's the point of it? I can't fold another shirt. I can't do another dish. And asking our neighbors and friends and my aunt and, I don't know, Liz, you know, just do your best. And she just couldn't handle it. She was given this huge book from a neighbor that said, I don't know, check out this. And I remember this huge book sitting on the counter. But somehow that week she opened it up and she just saw a picture of Jesus Christ inside of a heart. And there was a simple caption that said, you're going to be hungry, essentially, forever until you let Christ fill that hunger. So all by herself in her little kitchen, she just said, well, I need Jesus then. And so she had gotten saved but didn't know any Christians. So that's the kind of the background. So um, I had my mom come to my weekly youth class that I had to go to every Wednesday night for our original church. It was awful. It wasn't well planned out. There was no life. There was no gospel. And I made her come, and if you know, if you're 10 or 11, it's not cool to bring your mom to a class, but it was that bad. And I had her come, and I purposely raised my hand to kind of egg the teacher on, because he didn't know what was happening. And he had said, what's your favorite favorite gospel story? I still remember this burned into my head, my mom sitting behind me in the class. I just raised my hand, and I said, well, what's a gospel story? And I knew he didn't know. He didn't know, the poor guy. And my mom just kind of saw the quality of what was happening. And that same night was the Awana parents' night. And my class got done at 6.30. Awana started at 6.45. And I said, Mom, this little 10-year-old, this doesn't make sense. I just feel like God was pushing because what little 10-year-old can choreograph this? Mom, you got to come to Awana parents' night. And so she came with me. And I'm not saved at this point, but I just feel like she needs to come. And she walks into this itty-bitty little church with had the Awana program, and she just realized this is where I can come to learn about Jesus Christ. It was the first time she had identified a Christian community. Like, these are my people, and I didn't even know these were my people. So she started dragging my poor dad. That was rough for him. Many generations of being in his church, it was painful for him to leave, but he heard the gospel there and shortly after got saved and started running their Awana program. So I'm going to fast forward a few years, and I'm 15, I am still not saved, and 
my social world is everything. And I have a lot of friends who are not saved. And so at that age, everyone starts getting involved in alcohol and is becoming sexually active. And I'm going down that path 100 miles an hour. And my mom is heartbroken. And she's doing everything she can to try and stop me. It's not working at all. Um, and the youth group was having this winter ski retreat, and my mother made me go. She took me in this bus, kicking and screaming, and I'm bawling, and you can't make me do this, and I don't like these people, I don't know these people, these people aren't cool, because <laughs> I'm 15, and I don't understand. So she makes me go, and at the retreat, I heard the gospel. I was sulking in the back of the session room after a long day of falling down the ski hill. It was awful, I didn't know how to ski, and I had no friends there. I didn't want to be there. I was exhausted. I was in pain and I was lonely. Um, but that was the perfect place for me to see the mountain of my sin separated from everything that I thought made me cool and special. I was just there and I heard the gospel and um, God just penetrated my heart and I could see how my sin for the first time. And Christ became the king of my entire life at that moment. Even though I didn't think I wanted it, it just, he penetrated my heart. And I got home. I did not tell my mom that I got saved because I was 15 and I was a little bratty. <laughs> but she saw that first night I got home, you guys, my super cool friends called me to go to a party that very night because every night something's happening, right, when you're a teenager. And I said, no. And I couldn't even believe the words were coming out of my mouth. I said, no, I don't want to go. And they said, what? Well, what are you going to do? Where are you going? Why can't you come? And I said, well, I'm going to hang out with Brooke and Jenny Considine and those guys. And they said, what? <laughs> it's very teenager, but it was a big deal. And it was very powerful at the time that I didn't go. I switched my friend group immediately because for the first time I could see sin. And I could see that it was painful. And I could see that it was dirty. And I could see that it's just, I don't want it anymore. And I could see that's all that was going to be at those parties now. And I had, to, I had to switch. And I just craved the good stuff all of a sudden. I just wanted it. I was hungry for it. So um, I've been battling my sin ever since, of course. Um, but as I grow closer to Jesus, what it looks like for me to acknowledge Jesus as king of my life now is to get down on my knees and repent like clockwork, day after day and year after year. And when I say repent, I don't mean just telling God that I'm sorry. God asks us to repent of our sin, which means I'm telling God that I'm turning away from my sin, which takes a lot of action after the prayer. Much more action than just saying, I'm sorry, then I have to go do something. Um. I ask God to help me die to myself. I beg him to let me decrease so he can increase. You know, as a daughter who wants to make, you know, your parents' 40th anniversary special, as a sister who wants to make the shower special, and as an educator who wants to pick the perfect curriculum, and, and all these little things that are weighing on you that become really, really big things in your mind, as a wife and mother of three, it's a painful process to become more invisible, but if my focus is my king, it's a blessing to be put into a job that daily forces you to become less so that Christ is all that's visible. All of us have been placed in jobs and relationships that ask us to become more and more invisible. 
and constantly serve and forgive and work and bless others. Jesus is the power and the king inside me that helps me keep moving forward in his work. Forward, I love that motto. It's Wisconsin's motto, if any Wisconsinites out there, forward. You know, the Bible tells the story of an angel named Lucifer who couldn't bear the thought of God being king. He truly thought that he deserved some worship and adoration and recognition too. What about me? He wanted to be king himself, and my heart burst with that same cry that Lucifer had. What about me, me, me? Lucifer and I were both created to be as clear air through which the love and power of God might pass through to bless and to bring our creator glory. So my current prayer these days is a great comfort to me. It was originally written by the great servant, Amy Carmichael. I pray it will be a comfort to you as well. And I'll close my testimony with her words. Love through me, love of God. Make me like thy clear air, through which unhindered colors pass as though it were not there. Powers of the love of God, depths of the heart divine, O love that faileth not, break forth and flood this world of thine. Thank you. My name is Tage Clint, and I am a forgiven rebel. This is my story. If it were possible, I would have been born into the kingdom of Christ. Both my parents and my grandparents were Christians, and my parents did everything that godly parents were supposed to do. I showed up to the church at two weeks old, and I've never left. Every nursery, Sunday school, VBS, Awana, I was there. I have a Timothy Award sitting in my parents' house, my old bedroom, my parents' house, if you want to come by to see. And each night, we'd gather around in my parents' bedroom, and my dad would read us a story out of the Bible from his children's story Bible. My parents taught me about Christ, the king of the universe. And when I was four or five, I accepted Christ as my savior and applied for citizenship in his kingdom. And I knew, thanks to Awana and all that VBS and Sunday school and nursery and every other thing, that Christ had a constitution for his kingdom. That constitution was called the Bible. And I wanted to be a good citizen of Christ's kingdom, so I diligently followed all the rules in that constitution. I kept the Ten Commandments. I went to church. I honored my father and brother. I did not hit my brothers, no matter how annoying they were. But the king was out there, far away, some omnipotent, mighty being that just was a million miles away from me, demanding perfect obedience. He died on the cross for my sins, and in return, he expected me to keep all of his rules. My sanctification was dependent on my own efforts. And this made perfect sense to me. My scholastic efforts depended upon my own effort. My scholastic achievements depended upon my own efforts. So why not my sanctification? 
After all, one thing I learned from the Bible and from the people around me and the culture was Christians, citizens of Christ's kingdom, are supposed to be good and nice people. So that's what I set out to be, a good kid. But as I got older, life got much more complicated, and it became hard to be good. And I felt tricked by the king. Now that I was living in a world with shades of gray all around me, it became impossible to keep up. I realized that my view of the king was wrong. He wasn't just an all-powerful being a million miles away. He was also a trickster that would love to grant my request at a terrible price. I was his entertainment. I was a grasshopper in a jar that he would occasionally shake to watch me hop around. And I became frustrated with this trickster king. I hardened my heart towards him. And gentle prompting by the Holy Spirit never let me fully walk away from the kingdom. But I was not a happy citizen. And I decided that if Christ was going to be a distant trickster king, then I was going to become a silent, self-reliant citizen. And for years, this arrangement worked. I kept up good appearances on the outside. I did good works for Christ. I did everything a good Christian kid was supposed to do. And the king left me alone. Only he didn't. After college, I began attending Harvest Bible Chapel, and they began a read-through-the-Bible-in-a-year challenge. So to keep up the good appearances, I joined in. I figured I would read through the Constitution again and review all of the rules again and relitigate all of my failures again. But this time, when I picked up my Bible, I didn't pick up a boring legal document full of irrational rules about the length of my sideburns. Instead, I found a love letter written directly to me. And for the first time as I read, I felt and understood and experienced the deep, indescribable love that this once distant king had for me. He wasn't writing a bunch of rules and then backing them up with tales of death and destruction so I would live in abject terror of his powerful might. He was writing to me, his treasured possession, a loved child begging me to follow him on the path to life. First, the king re-educated me on the true meaning of his holiness and his right to rule. He is the king sitting on his throne, surrounded by his angels as the universe bends to his will. I saw my wicked past attitudes in stark contrast to his perfect holiness, and I was ashamed. I was sinful, and even my good works were stained with the blackness of my sinful heart. And I started to understand the power and the true being that I was dealing with, this almighty, all-knowing, all-present, eternal God of the universe that I laughably thought I could wrestle into submission. Mortified, I continued to read all about this powerful king who patiently watched my rebellion, because that's what I was. I was a rebel leading a one-man uprising against the true and absolute rightful monarch. I read on in fear, waiting for the just and swift destruction, the, the, the traditional sentence for rebels like me. But it never came. 
The king in his love letters taught me about his amazing love. He saw my rebellion, and he was not cool with it. But it was an affront to his very existence. But rather than smite me with heavenly fire, he took the punishment himself for my rebellion. He loved me enough to come down and die for my sins. And not just the easily explainable ones that I made as a dumb kid, but he came down purposefully to take the punishment for every wicked, conscious, thoughtful act of rebellion that I decided to do out of the evil of my own heart. This king was holy, and he needed to be respected and feared, but this king was also love. He laid down his life that I, an ignorant rebel, might throw down my weapons and join his family. He fully forgave my rebellion against him. He never brings it up. And instead, he welcomed me into his family. He gave me a new life, a new hope, and a new purpose. And so, what does this actually mean? And why should you all sitting in the audience care about this guy up top on a Sunday morning? For this one reason. Christ the King has adopted me into his family. And I have the full rights of a natural-born son. Jesus Christ is still the same king. He still sits on his throne in the most glorious part in the center of heaven. He still has the same fearsome thousands of angels worshiping him around. And the universe still bends to his will. But now I, no one special, from nowhere significant, the son of nobody important, in charge of nothing of any meaning. I can swing open the door to the throne room of Christ and boldly approach him on his throne, knowing full well that the scepter of power that he uses to rule the universe will be extended to little old me. And he will stop and bend down and listen to my cries and listen to my pleas and listen to my requests. And he won't just listen, he'll act. He answers them. He looks out for me, and he loves me. And he does it because he is love. He's not keeping some sort of tally. I'm not going to get to heaven and have some sort of tab that I need to repay. He does it because he is love. And because of this, I am his precious son. And he is the one true king of my life. The kingship of Jesus is better than any other kingship. And yes, he demands absolute authority, absolute say-so over our lives. But as you heard, when he does so, he makes our lives far greater than anything they ever would have been if we had maintained control for ourselves. You heard in these four stories that his kingship is not a transactional kingship, meaning that it's not a matter of following rules, first and foremost. It's a story in which we've been adopted into the king's family and in which we enjoy all the privileges thereof as we praise him out of delight. You also heard in these stories that it's not an unstable kingship. He's not insecure on his throne. You heard in these stories of God, a king who is in control, who's weaving each of our stories together in our times and places and the events of our lives to achieve his purposes. 
namely his glory and our delight as members of his royal family. And we remember every Palm Sunday um, that even as we emphasize rightly God's love and his goodwill towards us, he is our king. Jesus does want to be king of your heart and of mine. And this king, Jesus, is the same one through whom everything was made that was made. He's the same one who holds the whole universe together from the expansion of the galaxies to the interaction of subatomic particles. And this Holy Week in particular, we remember that that same Jesus is the one who came to earth, not primarily to be a good moral teacher, but to die. To die in your place and to die in my place. Taking the punishment for sin that you and I deserved so that we could be with a holy God forever and ever. You've heard four people say that this is the sort of, if this is the sort of being who we have, this isn't the sort of being you invite into your life to be your consultant. You invite him into your life to be the king. He wants to be king of your interactions, over your romantic relationships, over your leisure time, over your finances. He wants to be king of all of it. And for those of us who are used to be king, being king of our own lives, it'll cost us. It costs us all the power that we held over our own existence. But you've heard these four people this morning sharing that it's worth it. Abdicating the throne of our own hearts and giving up kingship to Jesus is worth it, friends. He's a much better king than you and I could ever be. And giving up our measly power to him is something like a beggar who gives up Sure, everything he has, the handful of grains of rice, and receives two handfuls of gold in return. Have you ever asked Jesus to be your king? If you haven't, we want to give you an opportunity to do that before you even leave here this morning. We're going to sing a song to finish out. Um, Some leaders from the church are going to come up front. They're going to spread themselves out across the front. And if you want to pray... And just ask Jesus to be the king of your heart this morning. We want to invite you to come up to the front and pray with one of us. And we'd love to walk you through how to do that and how to pray. Asking Jesus to be the king of your heart. Or maybe you're here this morning and Jesus has been king of your heart. You've acknowledged him as such at some point in your life. But there's some area of your life in which you're wrestling with him right now. And wrestling, it's hard for you to give up kingship to him. Maybe you want prayer for that. Come on down to the front. Maybe you want to reaffirm your kingship, his kingship in your life this morning. If there's any sort of prompting that you experienced this morning that you would like some prayer for, there's somebody up here who would love to pray with you and for you. I'll pray now as the elders and deaconesses come forward to pray with those who want prayer during this final song. O Lord, our triune God, we praise you, Father, for sending your Son. We praise you, Holy Spirit, for moving in our hearts and drawing us to yourself. We praise you, King Jesus, for coming to earth to die in our place, taking the punishment for sin that we deserve. Please move in our hearts now, and may we make you King in our hearts. May we acknowledge you in your rightful place, ruling on the throne of our lives. May we do work with you during these next few moments as we sing to you and as we pray to you. In Jesus' name, amen.